This podcast is brought to you by DIA, the trusted global neutral forum for healthcare product development professionals. DIA, driving insights to action. In May 2021, the journal Therapeutic Innovation and Regulatory Science published a research article titled The Use of External Controls in FDA Regulatory Decision-Making. This article mentions the author's hopes that this research may lead to innovative approaches to clinical trial design, quicker product development for rare diseases, and updates to regulatory guidance. Hello and welcome. My name is Adora Endul, and I'm a member of DIA's Regional Advisory Council for the Americas. We are here today to discuss this topic with one of the authors, Veronica Miller from the University of California School of Public Health at Berkeley. Veronica is also the director of the Forum for Collaborative Research. Thank you for joining us today, Veronica, and welcome. Thank you for having me. This is a great honor and a great pleasure to be having this interview with you, Adora. Veronica, you have led the forum in supporting drug development initiatives across a number of areas. Please tell us a little bit more about the forum, as well as your current work in supporting development of drugs for rare diseases, including your engagement with health authorities. The forum is, is quite an interesting organization that was started through discussions throughout 1996 and officially established in 1997. And at that time, it was called the Forum for Collaborative HIV Research. And the reason I mentioned that is because an HIV Early on in the pandemic, the patient's voice was crucial. Patients were educated. They knew about the disease as much as as some of the scientists and clinical research did. And we really became part of the drug development process by providing their input, by forming advisory boards for the pharmaceuticals to engage with, and also by engaging directly with the FDA and the NIH in different kinds of advisory capacities. Today, patient engagement is a common feature of drug development, but it wasn't always that when HIV really led the way. So the premise of the forum when it was formed in 1997 was that it would be a neutral platform for patients, regulators, other government agencies, pharmaceutical companies and pharmaceutical trial sponsors and academic researchers to come together and talk about some of the issues that were trouble spots for drug development initially on HIV. So this neutral platform is the basis of the forum. And we work with U.S. and regulatory agencies. We work with all the pharmaceutical companies involved in a specific disease area. We engage the patients and patient advocates and patient representatives, as well, of course, as the academic researchers and anyone else who has a stake in this field. Today, we work in six different disease areas, and one of them is rare diseases. So in rare diseases, what we're trying to do is... It's the same mission as across all the other disease areas. Find a way to facilitate drug development, not by doing trials ourselves, but really by engaging with all the parties to find a way forward. And if we bring all parties to the table and everyone has an equal voice and everyone comes to the table with their expertise, but leaving their hats at the door, that's when we can make progress. Because then we often find points of common interest and commonality and concerns that we can address together. In rare diseases, given how many they are, 
we've had to really strategize on what paths do we take because we could engage with a set of diseases or more generally speaking. So our strategy for rare diseases is really to address the issues that plague every single rare disease, which is how do we do these clinical trials when the patient populations are so small. And so what we're really trying to promote is the better use of data. Data is a very, very precious commodity in rare diseases. And I'm using that word commodity, but you know what I mean. It's a very precious resource in rare diseases. And we owe it to the patients and their families to use it to the best way possible to develop scientifically sound, ethically sound research programs. So I can appreciate what you've said towards the end of your response there about how data is so precious in rare diseases. This leads us to think about how we can make the best use of the data that we do have on hand, which sort of ties to my next question about the types of external controls. As you know, there are many examples where external controls have been used to support development and approval of drugs for rare diseases. What do you hope this paper will accomplish? that it will serve as an educational tool, both within and outside of FDA? I think really both of them, and we've already seen that. I've had patient groups contact me after we published the paper and said, can we discuss this? So the different patient advocacy groups are looking at this as a way to say, oh, this is how an external control works, and this is how it has been used in the past. And I think it gives them something to base their thinking on. Each disease is so different and what type of data exists will be so different as well. But I think it really gives patient advocacy groups a tool for them to use to encourage clinicians in how to keep data, how to ensure that whatever data is collected through the clinics for each patient starts to approximate what is actually needed from a regulatory perspective so that we can have a more natural transition between retrospective and prospective natural history data. It really gives patient advocacy groups a good tool on which to base their interactions with clinicians, with regulatory authorities through mechanisms like the patient-focused drug development meeting and other mechanisms, and of course, also the pharmaceutical sponsors to say, we can do this together. For the regulatory authorities, sometimes one division doesn't really know what the other division is doing to have this sort of cross-disease area collection of where external controls were used is very helpful to them as well to see, yes, in fact, this is a mechanism that can provide good data. It's not perfect, but in this world, nothing is ever completely perfect, and we have to really make the best use of what we have. Veronica, FDA's use of external controls such as prospective and retrospective natural history data to support regulatory decisions is actually not new or unusual, especially for drugs treating rare diseases or pediatric indications. What types of external controls are most commonly used to support rare disease or pediatric approvals? For rare diseases, what's mostly available, of course, is the retrospective natural history cohort, as we saw in that paper we published. And that is simply because that's the way the world runs. People in clinics were and, and running cohorts were not really thinking about the need for prospectively collected data for drug development purposes, because very often 
the world has been divided between the clinical practice and the drug development world. What we're seeing, not just in rare diseases, but in many other diseases as well, is this coming together of what used to be totally separate silos to come together more. And in part, that's facilitated through electronic health records and other mechanisms of capturing data and being able to follow data at a bigger level, but also just because of the understanding of the importance of clinical data. And I think especially in some of the larger centers, that's really becoming part of what clinicians are really interested in doing to facilitate the care of their own patients. That's kind of part of the exciting part of all of this. And I often say the ground is shifting in terms of the regulatory world. And certainly with COVID, we have have realized that sometimes more efficient ways are actually better than the more traditional ways that take too long to present the data for an emergency like COVID. But COVID has also disrupted so many things. And I think really brought to the fore the need to get data, first of all, to I want to use the word pragmatize clinical research as such and make it more available to the patients where they are, but also to really learn how to look for data from other sources. So the ground is shifting in terms of how we will continue using randomized clinical trial data and real-world data in many different disease settings. Now, in disease settings where the treatment effect is very big, I always think back to hepatitis C. When we were developing direct-acting antivirals, we quickly came to the realization that we didn't need to have the standard of care control arm because the standard of care was so inferior to the efficacy of these new drugs. And so that was one place where both FDA and EMA said, okay, we will use the historic control or the historic knowledge of the control of what the standard of care does and not really use it to compare the over 90% efficacy of the new all-oral regimens. So in that kind of a situation, I think it's much easier to make that kind of a decision. The challenge with rare diseases is how do we measure the treatment effect and how can we differentiate that from what we see in natural history, either retrospective or prospective. It's a special challenge for rare diseases because of the heterogeneity of the patient population. And sometimes the treatment effect is is not that big to begin with. The other part that comes into this then is better ways to measure the treatment effect. And of course, we could talk a long time about how to get better at measuring the treatment effect with, in some cases, with biomarkers that need to be validated, but also better tools to measure either lack of progression or improvement in neuromuscular function, for example. The field is wide open for so many improvements, but we need to start with what we have and look at the data we have and see how we can make best use of that while we build on that to improve the situation. Veronica, I I appreciate your mention of hepatitis C and then also highlighting some of the challenges in rare diseases. For example, heterogeneity with regards to how diseases may present across patient groups. Now, when you think about external controls and specifically the utility of retrospective natural history as a primary source of external controls used to support development of these products, talk to me a little bit about some of the challenges As you know, two of the biggest limitations on using external controls are missing data and baseline imbalances between the treated and external control groups. What are the best ways to address bias as well as missing data? 
And that is indeed so challenging for the field. We have a lot of statistical approaches we can use and how to balance and how to impute missing data. The more we know about the natural history, the more we learn together, rather than having small registries here and there for specific diseases or clinics taking care of patients for rare diseases and in different parts of the world, the more we learn together about what the natural history actually does look like, the more we will be able to understand how to deal with that missing data. That is part of the challenge to the field is to really build those collaborations across for specific diseases or group of diseases that have a similar progression path. But definitely there are some statistical methods for imputing data when there is missing data. But of course, at some point, if if the missingness is too big, that is what then raises concerns. The other part about balancing the biases, when we use a randomized clinical trial, and especially if everyone is blinded, we expect to remove the bias as much as possible. And that certainly works if you have 500 patients in one arm and 500 patients in the other arm. If some of the patients are a little bit older, come in with a slightly different genetic background, or they come in with, you know, a comorbidity or two, that will all even out because you have 500 and 500. The smaller you get with your study arm size, the less randomization will be able to iron out those imbalances. And so I think the field as a whole needs to really rethink this question and say, to what extent does, if you only have 10 patients in one arm and and 10 patients in the other arm, and they are heterogeneous, and even if one of those arms is a placebo arm, to what extent is randomization actually able to deal with the bias if you only have 10 patients in each arm? I haven't seen that question addressed, and I think that really is a very important question for statisticians to start thinking about and addressing. But in terms of statistical approaches, we have some traditional ways to try. Basically, we're trying to infer causality, causal inference. And there are ways to do that with propensity scores and weighting, etc. But there are also now additional techniques that people are working on where We include machine learning, so targeted learning, along with these methods and maximum likelihood equation and things like that. So even though the data sets are small, we can get better at causal inference. And we can do that even with randomized clinical trials. So that's another challenge for the field is for the people working on these new methods to get together and say, how can we test this method versus this method of inferring causality? And what are the differences if we do that? There needs to be so much crosstalk amongst the statisticians to get to that point where we can say, this group did it this way, this group did it that way, and we can now understand what some of the differences are. So I think as a whole, the field really needs to move forward with a lot of collaboration across the statistical field. Veronica, was it surprising to see that retrospective natural history was more often used than perspective? Given that perspective is the gold standard, was it surprising to see these findings? Not really, because I know what's out there. But with my background, I started off doing clinical research with HIV before I came to the forum and participated in many cohort collaborations. But these were hugely funded. There was a big one in Europe that was funded through an EU mechanism. 
that looked that prospectively gathered data on HIV patients across Europe. So it was like tens of thousands of patients in a cohort. But the amount of funding it takes to do that kind of work is phenomenal. And then in the U.S., we also have that through NIH funding. So it takes a lot of funding to do a prospective study correctly and so that it's actually valuable. So you don't have garbage in, garbage out, that you really have good data coming in and good data coming out. And some of these areas like HIV, we have a whole bunch of different projects like that going on prospectively. And of course, a lot of patients as well. It's HIV definitely is not a rare disease. For rare diseases, we have registries, we have different efforts from different groups, but it hasn't really come together. It hasn't gelled as a field to say we really need to pull together on this. And of course, we all look forward to what the Critical Path Institute will bring. That's one of the efforts to really consolidate this kind of research into something that has all of the principles of understanding the data, the FAIR principles, and findable, accessible, interpretable, uh, reproducible. So that's really the approach that we need. So no, I was not surprised that it was mostly retrospective because doing prospective studies, you don't just decide on a Sunday afternoon between coffee and walking your dog that you're going to do a prospective study. It really requires dedicated funding and it's quite a big effort to do it right. FDA has issued guidance discussing the use of natural history to support development. It's a good first step, but what opportunities do you see for improvement or expansion? I'm kind of going to take kind of a step back and kind of a high-level overview. What's missing is obviously what's not in there, and that is the opportunity to learn together. This goes across different areas of the FDA as well, but I think as a whole, to improve the whole regulatory process, we need to have a mechanism to say, okay, this is what we did, but let's have a committed follow-up to see what actually happened after the drug was approved. How was it used and what was the effect of it? To then back-validate the natural history that was used to approve the drug. So yes, we can talk about data quality and all of those things that are so important and how the data is collected, how complete it is, et cetera. But unless we use every opportunity to learn together, and that includes the FDA and the sponsors and the patient community, to then really say, okay, so what happened? Like in the paper we published, all of those studies that were external controls were used, what actually happened after that? Was there, you know, what is the effectiveness of the drug in clinical practice? And I was really struck by what EMA is doing when we had a workshop on external controls from both the FDA and EMA. And EMA has a very comprehensive system where they're doing exactly that. They're reviewing all of the cases where external controls were used, either for a new indication or for an extension of indication. And then following up and creating these European-wide platforms for data management and data consistency, et cetera. That approach, to me, is really what is needed. And of course, right now, all agencies around the world have been hit by COVID. And I know that's been very disruptive to all the processes. But I really see this opportunity. We always say drug development doesn't stop at the point of approval. So let's take that seriously from all angles and say there needs to be more concerted follow-up to really see what's, and I'm not talking about, oh, we need to take this drug off the market, but really understanding 
If this drug was approved on the basis of an external control, there were some issues with the data, but the decision was made. The potential benefit outweighed the potential risk. Now, let's really see how this is used and what happens after that. And do we have additional data? Because at that point, which is the other part I wanted to bring in, once a drug is approved, you can then a observational study, which is untreated patients. So why not then establish those kinds of cohorts saying, okay, these are the treated patients now. So we're getting away from natural history, but the first drugs are usually not ideal. We want better, right? So we need to see what's happening with the first drug so we can then build on that and have combination treatments or better drugs, less toxic drugs or whatever is needed for that specific disease. But if we can build on what we see when these approved drugs go out, I think we will all learn and then know how to improve the guidances for how to use natural history data. This is the point in time where we really need to say, now we need to have observational studies of people on treatment. The shared learning becomes critical because that's how we can innovate, by understanding and sharing what is possible, sharing across agencies, as well as sharing the opportunities about how we can reduce bias. Veronica, I will tell you, this has been the most enlightening conversation. These are all the questions that I have for today. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. Adora, it was wonderful to have this conversation with you. And I wish, wish you and all the listeners all the very best. To end our discussion today, our listeners can find Therapeutic Innovation and Regulatory Science online at springer.com. For DIA, I am Adora Endu. Thank you. To learn more about this topic, visit us online at diaglobal.org.